Today on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear returning guest Heidi Lee say, Part of being a good salesperson is just having that ability to know that the, the money is coming to you. Welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have returning guest Heidi Lee. Heidi is the owner of AFA Gallery, found in both Manhattan, New York, as well as in France. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part of our conversation together, I highly recommend you take the opportunity to do that. But but before you go running off to try to download that, don't worry. You don't need to have heard one before the other. It'll work out. Just stick with us here. But on this episode, we're going to get into some great topics completely different than the topics that we had in the first one. The first, and and probably the most important, was the key to succeeding in the art business. Well, that's about hiring people, hiring the right people. We also talked about maintaining a healthy state of mind, both in good times and bad. Seems like a fluffy subject, but trust me, we got in deep on that one. And coming away from it, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And we're going to get into another one that I don't think it's been said enough, quite frankly. Maybe it's because people are afraid to say it out loud. And it's this. Why do the French not buy art from us art dealer folks? Even when you own a fancy gallery in France that's inside a castle with a moat and a drawbridge, like the one that our guest Heidi Lee opens, yep, that's right, a castle. We're going to get to those and many more subjects along the way. But in the meanwhile, I want to go back to that one, that, that one about hiring the right people. That that's a big one. That's huge. And, uh, and it's so big, I, I think it's worth knocking around a little bit at the, uh, yeah, you guessed it, at the old art dealer bar. So if you got a second, please come and join me there while I uh, bloviate a bit from the bar stool. Okay. Are you comfortable? You got that perfect something-something in your hand? Something to hold you over while we uh, go over what is a very big and important topic? Good. And it is. Hiring the right people for an art gallery might be the secret ingredient to succeeding in this industry. And it almost feels silly to even say might. I think most of us who have been doing this for a while, we know not only is it the hardest thing, one of the most challenging things, one of the most time-consuming things, It is a key thing. And why? Because our business rides on the backs of the people who are able to work the floors of our galleries. Not maintaining them, not watching them, not just being greeters, but are able to woo people, are able to talk, who are able to tell stories that captivate people, who are able to take a small spark of a bit of interest and and fan it and fan it and feed it and feed it until it becomes a flame and the flame becomes a collection. Those people. And if you can't find people who are capable of doing that, then in this business, you're nowhere. Completely nowhere. I'll let you in on a little secret. There was a time Let's call it my adolescent years in this business. And I know I've told you over uh, the many episodes we've done so far that I've been doing this for a long time. And what I haven't indicated was there actually was a period where I took a break. Let's call this my rumspringer. 
I needed to find out if I could survive in the corporate world. I didn't have to live there forever. I just had to experience it and prove I can do it. And the place I wound up was inside a high-end staffing agency, one that specialized in placing creative people. And while there, I learned one great bit of wisdom that they had developed an understanding for over the many years that they had been around. And it was this, that you didn't need to make a perfect placement. Someone didn't have to have every little detail in the job description. They didn't have to be doing it as many years as people had requested and need to know every little bit of software that the ad agency or design firm you were placing them then required. What they needed, what made for a perfect placement, they had to be a cultural fit. They had to get along with the people who are already there. And this is true. This proved true over and over and over again. And it's true to our business too. But our business, unlike those businesses, well, it's just one factor. And the reason for that is the people who do the work that we do, who sell on the floor, who create that bit of magic that I've talked about many times, they're a, they're a special breed. They're a breed like comps and soldiers or lawyers and the clergy who actually are responding to a calling. In our case, we're a little bit more like carnies or circus folk. But still, nonetheless, we are unique. And by unique, I guess I mean special. And by special, I guess I mean weird, odd. We are misfits for the most part. And I've said this before, maybe even on this podcast. I think it was inside a conversation once. I, I, I honestly believe this. And I, I mean, I mean it jokingly, but there's some truth in it that the art profession is composed of a lot of very talented and smart and gifted individuals who are otherwise completely unemployable. That comes from a lot of reasons. I haven't quite entirely figured it out. Maybe it's just because we have a taste to be doing nothing else. I don't know. But the skills that it takes to do this, I mean, you've heard me go on and on about it before, but let me, let me break it down just a little bit again. These are the people who are who are able to craft a story, who are not only able to talk and woo a collector, but they're also able to emote at the drop of a hat. They can get invested into one single little painting put in front of them in a viewing room. They can get incredibly personal and even intimate with people who they've only known now for about five minutes from the moment they walked in the front gallery door to make deep connections so deep that they can convince somebody that they know enough about something or they can find the specialness in something so much that it's worth spending a great deal of money on it. That's, that's quite unique. But with that comes a lot of other things. The people who are able to do that, well, they tend to be rather emotional people. Not so surprising. If you can emote in front of somebody at the drop of a hat, you probably have a rather broad set of emotions yourself. They tend to come with a little bit of extra drama than your normal corporate person does. No surprise. They are creative folks that express their creativity in the form of a live, in-the-moment bit of performance art. They are not the normal breed. And with that comes a lot of complexities. Also with that, has come an incredible amount of stories, and I'm not going to get into all of those right now because they would take a lot of time themselves. But let's just say they involve things like the art dealer who burned down his house with his wife in it, the art dealer who really was running a drug ring out of the back of a gallery, art dealers who actually have a connection with a mob. And I'm going to stop there, and we'll save that for another day. Look, as I've shared with you before, 
as an artist agent, as someone who spends a lot of time traveling around and works with hundreds of galleries over a very long period of time, knows as many people in this business as probably anybody else does, has seen galleries take every potential shape that they come in, seen all the different styles of hiring people, to be more specific, the styles of managing them, philosophies about who you hire and how you keep them on board. I've seen galleries who believe in hiring kids and feel that they can be trained over time. I've seen galleries who only believe in hiring old timers who have been doing this for well over a decade. I've seen strict galleries, I've seen loose galleries, I've seen anything goes galleries. I've seen galleries that believe in heavy training and I see galleries that believe in absolutely no training. I have seen all of those things in their worst versions and indefinitely in their best versions. And I can tell you after all these years, witnessing all these different kinds of galleries and the way that they hire people and the way that, more importantly, they manage them and attempt to keep them on, I've only seen a couple common threads to them. But the threads that I've seen, they are critical. They are perhaps the secret to making anything work, no matter what you believe or how you approach it. And the most important is this one. No matter how you hire, no matter how you train, no matter how you manage, it has to be you. You, the gallery owner, you, the executive director. It has to be you doing it. You need to not only be hiring them, but it has to also be you on your own gallery floor. You have to be there as much as your own people are. And there are many of us in this field that had a fantasy that one day we would get to the point where our galleries worked on their own steam, where we can go off to the links or go sailing. And as long as we had a cell phone in our pocket and we were only a call away, we can manage. Or maybe believe that our energies are better served in the back room, paying the bills, talking to vendors, hanging out with artists, going out for lunches, schmoozing, whatever it is, much more important than being there with our folks who work the front line in the trenches. And it just isn't true. The galleries that succeed, the galleries that hire the best, the galleries who maintain, the galleries who retain the best of talents, more importantly, the galleries who seeing the best of sales, those are the galleries whose owners are right there on the floor doing the job with their people. And there's a lot of reasons why. First of all, they model the style of selling art that they believe in. You can talk as much as you want. You can train as much as you want. You can scold your art dealers as much as you want. But the fact of the matter is, you will never get anybody to work in the guidelines that you envision are important for the, the culture, the style, whatever it is of your art gallery, if you're not there modeling it. Not once, not twice, not occasionally, not every third Thursday, but every single day during all of the hours that, that your art dealers are working the floor. You have to be living it with them. If you're not, they don't believe it. And if they don't believe it, they're not going to do it. It's not because anybody's got an attitude about it. It's just how people are. Why should you believe in something that someone doesn't believe in enough themselves that they're actually doing it there too? The other is the gallery owners who work the floors of their own gallery that are there as much as anybody else. They always know what's going on. They're always on top of it. The deals that their art dealers are involved in, they get followed up. The calls get returned. Artwork is always presented completely and efficiently 
ups are never rejected. No one ever lets someone go in and out of the gallery. In the galleries where the owners are on the floor, everything operates typically the way it should. But that's just the management side of it. The other is the more emotional side of it. When art dealers, greeters, gallery aides, whatever you have on your gallery floor, are there working alongside the people who actually own the gallery, they genuinely feel like they're working in a place where the people who own it care about what is going on. And because they know they're working in a place where the owners care that much, they're able to start understanding it, they're able to start experiencing it as a place with importance, as a place with value. And now, more than ever, those facts, those reasons why it's important for gallery owners to be on the floors of their own gallery, well, that's never been more important. At the end of most of my podcasts, you have heard me, if you've listened before, read some of our reviews. They're up on iTunes, even sometimes the emails that get written in. And one of the most common things that people say, other than, hey, can you shorten up your episodes, Danny? Is, I learned about your show in Art World News. Every single month, our show is an ad that runs in Art World News. Not only are they a sponsor of this podcast, but we're a client of theirs who puts advertising in their magazine. And there's a reason for it. I want to talk to people in the art business. The people in the art biz want to know about everything going on in the art biz. So they read Art World News. That's where you find those people. The professionals. The ones who actually do the job. Art World News. It's where all the professionals in the art business come together, and it's where everybody who wants to talk to them definitely advertises. Good economy, soft economy, bad economy, I don't know. I gotta tell you, though, it may be the very best time to be in the art business. Because before... There was a time where you had to have a gallery in the perfect part of town. You had to have it exactly in the right part of the street that got the perfect traffic. If you were an artist, you had to get into that gallery in the right part of town. And if you had that gallery, you had to get the perfect artists. It was tough. But over the years, something has come into our universe. Art fairs. Art fairs where collectors and artists and galleries get together. It's a pretty amazing phenomenon. And the people who are expert at doing this, well, that's Redwood Media Group. They put on art fairs all year round all around the United States. Most recently, and coming up right now, is their fair in Santa Fe, New Mexico in July. Following later on in the fall is their fair in San Diego. Now they have a lot more, and if you want to learn about those, you should go on over to RedwoodMG, standing for Media Group, .com. There you can get the whole list of all the shows coming up. Let them know Danny told you. People ask me all the time, they say, Danny, what does it take to put on a great art show? One that sells a lot of art, gets a lot of people, has a lot of success. And I say, there's a lot of things you need. First of all, you got to have a good artist. I mean, that's an obvious one. Secondly, you, you got to put on a, a clean looking show. You got to get the word out for sure. Have some nice invitations for God's sakes. And oh, by the way, hire Allison Zucker Perlman and her company, Relevant Communications, that you can find at relevantcommunications.net. They are publicists. They Put the word out. They know what we need in our business. They are specialists specifically in promoting art galleries, artists, publishers, you name it. 
Go find out what the folks at Relevant Communications can do for you at relevantcommunications.net. As I said, this is part two of our conversation with Heidi Lee, the owner of AFA Gallery in both New York and in France. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part, once you're done listening to this one, part two, it's okay to listen to them out of order. You should definitely go and check it out. As a matter of fact, I know after listening to this, you'll have to. Since you might have missed the first one, let me tell you a little bit about Heidi. In addition to owning those two galleries, she started off as an expert in animation. But over the years, that expertise has expanded into many other realms. And right now, she is noted as an authority in applied graphics and all the different forms that it comes in. So much so, she has been brought on as an expert to work with major organizations as well as corporations, including Disney and even the Library of Commerce. But without getting into too much more of her biography, much of which, as I said, is covered over in episode number one, why don't we just go and drop into the second part of our conversation now? So today, just to shift gears on you, what's the toughest thing about running a gallery today? Same thing as it was yesterday. And that was? Finding good help. And what does it take to find good help? (laughs) You got any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, I have an interview um, that has some really good questions. And, you know, I, I enjoy interviewing someone and getting to know them through an interview. So I think it's really important to find out who somebody really is, what they want, what they have been through to decide that this is where they want to go in life. Because sometimes people are just interviewing because they don't have anything else to do or they don't really have nothing to bring to the table as far as being really dedicated to this career. That's not interesting. So I think somebody who really is aligned with the industry is an important thing. Someone who has the ability to just follow the rules, show up on time and show up and and work ethic is huge, huge. So I'm going to challenge you on that. You have a great, great art dealer that is someone who really has the power on the floor to romance a piece of art, get someone excited about it, and is very effective at converting to sales, okay? And you have someone who's okay at that, but they're very punctual. They can show up in time. That great art dealer who can romance the hell out of a piece of art in the sales kind of comes and goes as he pleases, are you taking the person who's okay and shows up on time? Or are you, you hanging in there with the person who's just got some sort of gift? Like my friend John Wilton used to say, who's the president of um, Health and Tennis of America, good gross forgives a multitude of sins. So that means you're picking up the punctual person? No. Au contraire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would take the cash cow for sure. Of course. So what, what are you looking for then in an interview? Well, um, it depends on what the interview is about, for sure. You know, I mean, I've had, um, you know, over the years, I've had some pretty bad luck with bookkeepers. Um, but I don't even want to talk about that. But, um, you know, for, for somebody in, you know, in sales, it's having the, you know, the savvy and the, and the passion about the, the work. And absolutely 
knowing how to sell and loving it and getting off on it. I had, I remember like such a, such a long time ago, there was a, a sales girl that I had. Um, her name was Allison and uh, she was adorable and she loved it and she knew everything. It was the most incredible thing because she would just have no luck. And then finally she would, you know, I mean, nobody would even answer the phone, you know? So she would go out to lunch and the minute the, I mean, the door would not even be closed all the way. She would be out the door. The phone would start ringing. Um, people would come in. They would want to buy this. It was, it was like there was this influx of, of money. But as soon as she was gone, you know, it was almost like she was creating this, this disturbance in the force. <laughs> and I loved her. And I had to let her go. To this day, understand what that was all about. I guess she was just in the wrong place. So was, so, it just, was she just an oddly lucky person? Or was she no, good at, at working the gallery, yet nothing would come together in that moment? Or You know, Danny, it, it, part of a good being a good salesperson is just having that ability to know that the the money is coming to you like like money it just it just comes you know and it's not something that is really explainable it's something that's more inexplicable <laughs> uh, but it's true you know it's almost like if you uh, if you have the ability to manifest it. Have you ever had an experience where you needed a particular thing or and, you had, and there was a deadline and it was right up against that deadline and then poof, voila, exactly what you needed was there? Yes. Okay, so it's like that. Um, so it just, it just comes. I personally don't believe in magic <laughs> or, or manifesting. Uh, it's just my personality on it. I, I personally think that there's something else happening when that takes place, which is you're, it's maybe subtle, but there are things that that person's doing that's right up against deadline that's making it a more likely thing to take place. But I do believe this. I do believe you have to, regardless of the fact that I am not a person who is a person of faith, you have to still have the faith anyway. And it's because it could be like tightrope walking. Meaning the minute you look down and start having thoughts about how crazy it is that you're this high up and you're balanced on nothing but this bit of cable, you're going to fall. You know what I mean? <laughs> so in the same way that yeah. the minute you start giving thought to, you know, all the things that are going against you in our business, there's no, no reason anybody has to buy a piece of artwork. The economy isn't great. There's a weird election taking place. You know, uh, some terrorist did this bomb in this corner of this town. Whatever it is, there's always a thousand reasons why no one's going to be in the mood to do this and has no immediate reason to participate. But if you start, and if you start thinking about those things, you're doomed. And if you completely ignore them and just keep on chugging forward and doing what you know how to do, that's the only time you have really have a shot at it. Like the little engine that could. I think yeah. I can, I think I can, I think I can. So then the manifesting theory holds water because if what you focus your mind on expands and you have that I think I can uh, attitude in place, which is positivity. I just think it's about not defeating yourself, that's all. Because you know, you're right. If, if you start going, we're screwed. There's only one day left. <laughs> I'm doomed. 
Right, right. Rent, rent, rent is due tomorrow. There's only one day. It happens to be Tuesday. Tuesday's the worst day to sell artwork, you know, with my block or whatever it is. Like, one, what is that going to get you? And two, you, you stop paying attention, though, to the subtle things, which is you're now a person who's stressed, who's trying to sell something that's based upon pleasure. You can't have that in your head. You can't be that person. If you're just thinking no's and that's all you're bringing to the table when that one person walks in from off the street, who's your only shot? But if you're blissfully making yourself ignorant of the circumstances that you're under, <laughs> or you're very optimistic and you, you look at them, you go, that's it. This is the magic person who's going to come in and save the month. That attitude alone might actually help you. It might be enough to get that's through that. Point. We manifest you know, with, with our minds and what we're doing with our minds. You still have to be a good art dealer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Manifesting alone was not going to save anybody. <laughs> I would go nuts if I had an art dealer who was working for me and wasn't doing the basics, you know, didn't know how to introduce people properly to art, didn't know how to talk it, didn't know how to process, didn't know how to do follow-up. And they told me, but I'm manifesting this. Yeah, but if they show you the money, then what are you going to do? Oh, they show me the money. They show exactly. me the money. I don't care. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> if, if they tell me I got a magic quarter in my pocket and I rub it, and that's why I did 300 grand in sales this month, I would make sure that they never lost that quarter. <laughs> I just bank on what works. Okay, so the hardest thing. So you mentioned, though, you've got a very specific interview process. So what is it like to interview with Heidi? Normally, people who are younger are generally more nervous in an interview just because, you know, um, they're less experienced and so forth. And somebody who is, uh, has, is more experienced and has the, you know, some years behind them and just is more comfortable in their own skin, is more relaxed. So, you know, after basics, like, um, what did you learn in this position or this, you know, what, what were your responsibilities and, you know, at, at this place, what did you like about it? You know, what did you not like about it? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> um, and, you know, what do you think that you're best at? What would you change about yourself if you could change one thing about yourself? Who's your favorite cartoon character and why? Do you what really care about friend? the answers? It sounds like oh, you're asking yes. questions just to see how comfortable they can be. Well, if, for example, if I asked someone how their best friend would describe them, you know, once they're comfortable, mm -hmm. and they say, oh, my best friend would describe me as um, wonderful and happy and goofy and spontaneous and... Like sometimes I'll be there and sometimes I won't. It tells me, you know, about um, per potential personality flaws. If I ask them what their dream job is, and their dream job is to be a professional photographer, and you know that they, um, you know that they are preparing for it by taking night classes, and in three years, you know they have a. a guaranteed job with a sister-in-law in Idaho, I'm not going to hire that person because they're going to be gone in three years. And they're, you know, and their head is focused elsewhere. So really, By the way, it's I'm a, not going to hire them because they're not smart enough to lie to me. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, you, you just, there's so much information that you gain in an interview so that you know if, if somebody is potentially a good fit. 
if they're smart, if they can think on their feet, if they can admit a mistake, and if, you know, and how they recover from that. I guess it's probably terrifying to interview with Heidi. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, the the questions that I ask are very... um, they're, they're personal and they're surprising. A gallery is not a corporation. It's not the kind of a place where we want to put a square peg into a round hole. I mean, you know, there's certain job requirements for sure, but you know, there's different personalities and all the everybody with learning disabilities is in a creative industry for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and so um, finding someone who is a good fit is a really important thing. You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm always fascinated by the process that gallery owners use to hire people. And rarely do people introduce the one thing that I get most excited about or I'm most focused on. See, to me, being an art dealer is a performance job. And I think if somebody was auditioning to be an actor, you know, to be a singer, something like that, the obvious thing we would do is we would say, could you sing me a song or could you read from this script or you know, did you prepare a monologue like you would in any other position like that? I find it funny that we even start getting into those questions. You know, you, you want to know how they talk. Mm-hmm. Oh, I make them talk. I, I always um, ask potential art consultants to go pick a piece on the wall over there and t- tell me all about it. That's what I used to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what the always most telling part of it was? Did they flinch when you ask them to do that? Yeah, and are they eloquent? Are they quick on their feet? Can they just, you know, are they creative? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but because they, they should ever... have a whole language of art speak and vocabulary that is professional and interesting and, you know, filled with colorful adjectives. And, uh, you know, ha- they should have the knowledge of the art industry to be able to wrap something up with a bow. And even if they have no idea what's on my wall, if they can create a relationship with Chagall or Miro or any of the, you know, contemporary masters or, you know, it doesn't matter. If they can talk the talk and walk the walk, then... then I used to set it up where I said it would say, you know, look, I don't care if you know anything about that artist at all anything about the style of the painting, anything about the technique, just make all that crap up. But I want to see, <laughs> you know, really, because we can teach you that. I mean, that, you know, not that I can say that's the easy part, but it's teachable. But I really want to see, can they get comfortable in their own skin? Mm-hmm. Can they just fly and tell a story? And it's yeah. the easiest kind of story to tell if you don't have, you're not conf- uh, constrained by the need to be accurate in the process. Mm-hmm. You can make the story be whatever it needs to be to make it interesting. Can you be comfortable with that? Because I always figured if you couldn't, you probably couldn't do it in, under any circumstances. But the one that would get me is occasionally you get people that, when I said flinch, that literally would react like they're not comfortable with that. And that to me, that's it. We're done. Because in this controlled circumstance of an interview, if you can't be comfortable to talk about a piece of artwork. You're done. Right. (laughs) You know, try it with some, you know, half drunk Wall Street jerk that walks in. (laughs) So, all right, let me ask this. Here it is. You've been in the business. You've had galleries from that dining room table to today for how many years? 32. 32 years. You now have a location out in Las Vegas. You have a location back in uh, Manhattan. And oh my God, I left out the fact that you have a castle 
And when I say you have a castle, you don't live in the castle. Sure I do, in the summertime. Okay, you live in your castle. I just came back from two and a half months there. And what's it like as a business? Well, it's very different than, uh, you know, just a, a showroom, a standalone showroom for a gallery. Uh, the the galleries within the chateau support the uh, the artists and the stable in the United States. And it's extraordinary. It never ceases to amaze me how many people come into our showrooms in Las Vegas or New York and say they discovered us in the, you know, deep in the Aveyron, which is the country uh, about one hour south of Paris. It, it's, it's big and it's a, an historic landmark. So people go there because it is, sits right on top of one of France's official most beautiful villages. About 22,000 people come through the chateau every year. And when they come onto the property, they cross a drawbridge where there's a freshwater moat, one of the 17 in France. And they see revolving exhibitions of artwork and sculpture and um, original armor. And they see architecture because the chateau was um, acquired as a ruin in 1971 by one of France's great architects. But it's just, it's a very special property. And the artists come and we have champagne and it's really good champagne. <laughs> and I've had uh, master classes. I don't think you can get away with having a business in France with bad champagne. No, they, no. they kick you out if I'm not mistaken. C'est impossible. And I've had but is it is it just a thing of passion, or is it a real business that you have out there? It's both. You know, if your purpose and passion are connected to, um, you know, a lucrative endeavor, then you know it's it's a beautiful thing. Are you selling art in the same way there as you sell here in the states? No, um, we sell less art there, much less art there. Uh, m- most people come for. Um, the historical visit. And with French people, they, they are truly socialist um, in, in the sense that if they can see millions and billions of euros worth of artwork at the Louvre for seven euros, why would they spend 700 euros to have one thing? You know, it just, like the, that synapse just doesn't fire. And so we do sell artwork to the Parisians. Uh, we sell a little bit of art there, but, you know, mostly we sell the visits. And, you know, the, there's a robust gift shop, you know, thing that happens. I used to have this list, and I once used it as my parting speech to a staff when I left the gallery that I was directing, of people who you will never sell artwork to. And, and, and it was my parting speech because it was a thing you never say to your own staff because you never want them in that mindset of, you know, just write those people off if you ever see it. And it was, you know, I can't remember them all, but it was things like if a couple is holding hands when they walk in and they're still holding hands 30 seconds later, you will never sell them a piece of artwork. Two people with backpacks, you're never going to sell them a piece of artwork. French. <laughs> that's all I needed to say. <laughs> wow. And, and my, my argument for it was exactly yours, which... Well, it's that, but it's also a quality of life versus stuff mentality. And mm-hmm. in the United States, we are a, a consumer 
oriented culture where we have bigger cars because we have more stuff and then we have bigger closets and bigger garages for you know all of our stuff and you know in France they um, are not interested in all of this stuff because their quality of life is just so different and you know what is precious to them is um, memories that they build and you know and um, and adventures that they have when you hire someone in France they immediately, on day one, get six weeks paid vacation during year one. You don't have that in the United States. <laughs> to say we don't have that in the United States, that's, that's kind of like, you almost just said, here's what happens here. When you start a job, they give you three giant bars of gold. Then you get a spaceship. <laughs> it's about as equally alien as a concept. <laughs> here's, here's all I'm getting from your thing, though, is you cannot bring that culture to our country. <laughs> or, or we're screwed. You and I are out of the art business, apparently. Okay, so here you are. You're 32 years down the line. You have galleries going on. You've gone through some amazing artists. You've evolved with the animation world that has come and gone. You, you, to this day, when I went and met you at your gallery, you were still looking at new artists to bring on board and get considering different directions. But that's from where you stand now. If the slate was completely wiped clean, would you be in the business? Yes, I would be in the business, and I would have certain adventures in this business proportionately different. For example, the master classes experience that I organized at the Chateau was really interesting and exciting. And it just gave me a great deal of pleasure to be able to put that all together. I, I loved doing that so much. And I'm a wonderful um, event coordinator with creating synergy with organizations that help make the world a better place. And so pulling something together like this event uh, tomorrow uh, that, that, that's happening in, in my Vegas gallery to work with this foundation and, you know, this, this celebrity rock band and the, um, you know, and the gallery and the artist and, and to put all of that together and create such a bigger event through the synergy is something that is second nature to me. Like I always think that way about how can something be um, more interesting and bigger and uh, more fun. So yes, I would be in, in this business all over again. But it sounds like the thing you like about this business the most is that it gives you the opportunity to do those kind of projects. Yeah, and you know, for the last 10 years, I've been too busy managing and micromanaging. And this is why I say having you know, a good team and having um, you know, good you know, people um, is such an important thing. I think one of the most profound business books that affected my um, my attitude with running a, a gallery was Jim Collins' From Good to Great. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's been no. on the New York Times bestseller list for like 25 years. He, he had um, 200 um, graduate students from Ivy League schools look at Fortune 100 companies and look at the businesses that went from good to great, remained status quo, or failed. And then he said, okay, let's take all of this data and, and figure out what is happening. And he came up with a couple of things that were 
profound in their simplicity, but important to every business owner. Um, and one of the things is the hedgehog principle. And that is, if you think about a hedgehog, it makes a lot of sense. Do what it is that you do the best. Do not get lost in the bushes. <laughs> Just focus on what it is that you do the best. And number two, make sure you've got the right person on the right place on the bus. So if you've got the right person and, and they're, you know, like doing the wrong thing um, for your company, then, you know, you, you have to like figure that out and put them, you know, in the best place, you know, is, is super important, especially with a machine as big as AFA Gallery, you know, it's. Um, okay. So what was the best day ever in the art business for you? So a couple of years after, uh, after the, we acquired the Chateau. There was a TV show that was on about, um, you know, this crazy American that came out and, um, uh, you know, bought the Chateau and bringing things from the United States back to France. And, you know, it was in the day when um, Bush Jr. was doing the weapons of mass destruction propaganda and, you know, and there was the Freedom Fries fiasco. And um, in any case, this TV show that happened was 40 minutes, commercial-free, super positive, doubled our business. And one of the things that happened from that was that I was invited to um, watch as a VIP this international fireworks competition that took place in Duquesville, where there was a, a big hole in the earth where there was a mine before. And so there was a lake in the bottom of it that was very still. And they had about 30,000 people that would go and attend this. And so there are three different countries that compete for first place. Uh, and it, they, they would be doing a fireworks show for about 40 minutes each. It was amazing. And then there was a, an eight-minute show-off uh, you know, performance from last year's winner. So uh, we got to watch in, uh, in this little tent in this really um, VIP area with the best view. And um, this, this man, uh, Dominic, who was just wonderful, and he was filming. And it, it, was, it was like Cirque du Soleil um, in comparison to Ringling Brothers. And so I had this conversation with Dominic, and I was telling him about the colors and the music. And we were just, you know, having this whole conversation about the... I guess I was um, giving him a review of the show, and he was so impressed with what I was saying. I was invited back the next year to be a judge. Judging fireworks. Judging fireworks. Okay, so this is the answer to your question. So the weirdest story it's was me. It's the job me. that every six-year-old wants. I know. <laughs> so it was me on stage in front of 30,000 people with these big megaphones talking about, you know, why <laughs> Portugal won that year. And then I had to accept this gorgeous, large, engraved, heavy plaque. And I wasn't sure if I was supposed to go and, you know, give it to President Obama or like, <laughs> but they presented it to me for the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you bring it to anybody or is it still sitting in your I den still or something? No, it's at, it's at the castle. But that's a weird one for you. How do you like those apples? I have a lot of weird, I mean. Okay, well, this is a common thing though, right? It was just what I pointed out before. You love the art business because you get to do this kind of thing. It's where it puts you. 
versus the doing of it of itself in and of itself. Oh yes, the, the whole micromanaging and managing. I, I was doing way too much of that for the last ten years, and it was gruesome because it's not. It, it's the least fun part of the job. If you're running a business, you know, with a dozen people or more, somebody has to be in charge of of where the boundaries are. You know, somebody has to be implementing the policies and procedures because otherwise, if it's you know, total pandemonium, your business will just fail, you know? And um, so it was never fun. That was definitely the least fun part of it. So now, yes, I, I, I want to have a gallery manager be responsible for all of that and um, go have more fun. That sounds good. Also sounds like a good place to end. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I really appreciate it. Nice talking with you, Danny. Wow. I gotta say, that part two, it was just as good as part one and and well worth it. I'm really glad I didn't edit this down too much. It was worth keeping both sections, if you ask me. And like I said, if you haven't heard the part one already, go on over there. Definitely take a listen. But I want to thank Heidi before I move on. Heidi, thank you very much for the time that you gave me. I'm really glad we got to have you on the Art Dealer Show. And since I'm throwing out the thank yous... I, uh, I want to thank again, as usual, some of the listeners who have uh, given a review over on iTunes and have said some nice things. And on this episode, I want to thank uh, Vanessa Sky. And uh, Vanessa was kind enough to go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. The headline of it was, I love it, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And I didn't put the entire thing in it, partially because it's long and partially because I'm really bad at reading on the microphone. But here's what she said. What an amazing opportunity for a young art dealer like myself to learn about the past and about the present of my profession. Okay, I'm going to stop reading for a second. First of all, I know Vanessa a little bit, uh, not personally so much, but we have had some business together. And uh, I certainly know her gallery. It's at the Forum Shops at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And it's a, it's a really cool little gallery. Um, but she went on to say, you know, she made the point that being in our business, selling art, it can be rather lonely. You can really feel on your own out there. And, and I certainly know that, particularly when you're a gallery owner. It's hard to find the camaraderie. And she's really talking about in this review about how she's getting some of that camaraderie from this podcast. And, and then I'll, here, I'll go back to her text. You know, she, she goes on to, after making that point, to say, there are a few crazy folks out there who, like myself, that has the passion that drives us to dedicate our hearts and our souls to this profession of art dealing. Thank you, Danny, for this opportunity. Well, again, Vanessa, thank you very much for the five stars, and thank you very much for taking the time to write this review. And if you want to write a review, please go on over to iTunes. Uh, it's always nice. But much more importantly, if you want to support this podcast, if you want to help us out a little bit, what makes the biggest difference are two things. One, subscribe. If you're listening on an app, just hit that subscribe button. The other one, the most important one, tell someone about it. Got a friend in the business who might also get something out of listening to the show, might enjoy listening to it. Let them know that it exists. That will make the biggest difference for us. So until next time, may the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. 
If you want to find out more about the Art Dealer Show, go on over to artdealer.show. If you want to get social with us at all the cool little social networking places, we're always under the handle, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show. <laughs> 